Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 13, After School Special. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, licensed social worker Carol Ferry. Let's get this show on the road. Hey, welcome back, Carol. Welcome back to Carrying Wayward. Thanks for having me back. Let me reintroduce you for our listeners. Carol is a registered social worker, counselor, and a longtime Supernatural fan. She has a bachelor's of social work with a minor in psychology and a master of social work in the field of social justice and diversity. Carol has worked in community activism and development and currently works as a short-term counselor. Drew, are you ready to recap this episode for us? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. We started a school where a bully, you know, insults his girl and then she murders her by drowning her in a toilet. And then it like some goo comes out of her and the brothers pick it up thinking it's a case. But it turns out it's also high school they went to when they were younger and they figure out that it's like ectoplasm and there's other hauntings going on. And they think it might be Sam's old friend from when he was a kid who was bullied and really angry at bullies. But then it's not him. It turns out it's actually the bully who himself was also a depressing backstory. We find out from the father. And then they beat up a ghost and burn his hair and save the day. And we have a bunch of flashbacks about Sam and Dean in high school and learn about their childhood. And it's super depressing in many, many ways. Time. That's about right. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's the episode. Let's move on to the long game. Sure. What do we learn this week? This is a pretty iconic episode in the fandom. And I'm mostly going to say that it's because of the gym teacher outfit. So Jensen Ackles actually gave input on what the costume should look like, and he based it off of his own high school PE, on one of his own high school PE teachers. And like, they literally tailored the shorts for them to be as tight as possible on him. Why does that make so much sense? And the only thing it was missing was like the really bushy, like Magnum PI mustache, really. Every PE teacher I ever had was a woman. Yeah, there you go. So there's a lot of stuff about the brother's childhood also and the neglect that they lived at the hands at the hands of John. And there's a lot of like implied John in this episode. It feels so John centric in the way that it's about their upbringing and their childhood. And we literally get what like what might be a stand in for John in the car when they're leaving. And like I, I'm willing to get a sample of his voice or someone imitating him. Yet without actually being present, he is so present. The closet scene where he's like, dis- Dean's describing what he thinks sounds like the most bomb, independent adult situation. And his girlfriend just looks like. So horrified. <laughs> it's an empathy I don't think Dean gets anywhere else, where it's simultaneously like, you should not have to do this. But I'm also not going to infantilize you. I'm just going to be empathetic, which is arguably why he doesn't freak out in that scene. I have thoughts about that scene, too. Oh, we're going to get to that scene for sure. This is also the first time that we see black goo on the show, and that is going to follow us until the very end of season 15. I jokingly in my notes put it demons now in liquid form. But I was wrong. It was a ghost. I'm so sorry. 
So in this case, it is ectoplasm. However, you know, we're going to see, I think what I'm referring to is mostly like the visual effect of the black goo that we're going to see have different roles on the show. So it will be ectoplasm. It, oh no, that's not true. We also had ectoplasm in the um, Holmes episode, the hotel or the condo building with Joe. It's the first time we see it coming out of a human versus coming out of a wall. Correct. Sam also says that it's the third school that they've been to and it's November. So that means roughly one month per school that they're going to. And that also means that it is the anniversary month of their mother's death. Crap, I didn't even realize that. Didn't realize that one. Did, however, in big bold letters write, confused how transferring this much hasn't triggered a CPS call. I think it's because they're changing states. So again, I'm certainly not like a, a, an, any kind of knowledgeable when it comes to the United States systems, but I think it has to do with the changing of states. So changing of states, I could understand, but every time you go to a school, you usually get your records transferred. And if you don't get your records transferred, usually a school administrator is going... Have you been homeschooled before this? Like, where are you before we put you into a grade? And how do we know that we can put you into that grade? So at some point, as a school administrator, I would, I mean, granted, it's the 90s. And for those of you who did not grow up in the 90s, yeah, adult supervision of children was questionable at a lot of times. But like, at some point, I would figure as a school administrator that you'd go, oh, Okay, so I have transcripts from this school from October, and then I have transcripts from another school from September. Is your dad in the military? Like, do you move around a lot base to base to base? No? Okay. But I'm also willing to bet, and I mean, this just says more about John than anything else. I feel like John's a pretty good liar and probably decent when it comes to forgeries or knows somebody who is. So forge documents... And he does have a military, yeah, and he also does have a military background, so lying about being military just for the sake of moving schools. I think the brothers, at one point, one of them even says that he's in the military as part of their cover story of why they're moving so much. I will accept that as an explanation. Let's accept the worst John Winchester case <laughs> as the explanation for this. So also, I, I don't know if you guys clocked it, but on the blackboard in Sam's classroom, you can see that they're talking about the trial of Johnny Cade. And they're planning to have a play about it. Some students playing the lawyers, the witnesses and the jury. And knowing what Sam decides to study in university or in college, sorry, this is the States. I kind of think that it's a really sweet wink to that and like a way to show just how influential Mr. Wyatt was to him um, to go even beyond like the really touching moment at the end. Does the content of the trial of Johnny Cade have any bearing on the episode? I mean, not really. What I will say is that the trial is actually from a 1967 novel called The Outsiders, which was made into a movie in 1983 by Francis Ford Coppola and starred, amongst many others, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Tom Cruise, and Patrick Swayze. So I would assume that this is a movie that Dean would be very familiar with. I mean, Dean's look is pretty greaser from that book. So, I mean, he was just missing the coat, like the, the switchblade comb, really. And the last thing that I wanted to add here is that the school is Truman High and that the sports team is the Bombers. Uh, for anyone kind of rusty on their American history, and in this case, I guess, world history, President Truman was the one who ordered the nuclear attack on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, 
I don't know if the writing team was trying to make a joke, but if they did, I'd really like them to explain it to me because I just don't find it funny. Yeah, one way of interpreting it could absolutely be a joke. The other part of me is going, this is a country that has numerous sports teams named after racial slurs. So I also wouldn't be surprised if there is legitimately a Truman High School whose mascot is the Bombers. But I think it also might be a commentary on just sort of the American view of like war and the military lifestyle, that it's a positive thing. I agree. You know what? I think it it could be that. And I would be willing to kind of take that take that into consideration if there had been like a comment about it. You know, if somebody had said, oh, the Truman Bombers, that's a little off, you know, any kind of comment about it, I think would have made would have made it look intentional in a way of like a commentary rather than like ha 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 look what we did well let's move on from the bad decisions the writers made to the bad decisions some of the brothers made this week today our theme is going to be lashing out because we see a lot of that in this episode but before we go on and talk about it is there like what comes to mind when you think about lashing out me right away, it jumps to kind of that like violent outburst, uh, whether physically or I guess like verbally kind of like a like a tantrum. I think in the modern day, we kind of see it in like just viral videos of people who are just angry to a level where they're no longer making sense. And there's just like a rage or an emotion you can't handle anymore. and You're letting it out in ways that don't necessarily like make the right sense. Like you watch someone do a thing. And you're like, why would they do that? It's because they've gotten so upset, angry, frustrated, whatever emotion that they're feeling that they just it comes out in bursts and they can't control it. So I'm going to preface this. This is taking place in high school. And there's a thing I want us to take into consideration when we kind of look through this lens. One of which is uh, your brain, the average person's brain, doesn't actually finish fully developing to around 25, 27. And one of the last things that develops is actually the part of your brain that allows relay and transfer of information because your brain handles things in different sections. The part of your brain that's calculating, hey, getting on this skateboard and holding on to my, the, friend of my, the back of my friend's car as he drives at 50 kilometers an hour might result in the following N injuries. When you're younger, reaches the impulse part of your control part of your brain, very slowly, which is why you run into kids and teenagers doing things that as adults, you go, why, 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 why would you, what part of you wouldn't realize that that was not a smart thing to do? And the reality is, oh no, there was a part of their brain that realized it was not, it was not a smart thing to do. But by the time that information connected with the impulse control, they were already on the skateboard and the car was already driving down the street. When we look at kind of kids and how they express their feelings, one of the skills that parents typically teach to children and teachers help teach to children is emotional regulation. How do I feel my feelings? What do I do with my feelings when they happen? And even with all the best teaching and patience, there's still going to be moments where the brain just doesn't act fast enough until you're older. I'd also point out how old are Dean and Sam in the present part of this episode? Dean is 29 and Sam is 25. 
Sam's impulse control just finished developing. So if we want to maybe look back at some of his choices earlier in the seasons one through four, eh, Dean by this point should probably be a little bit more head screwed on. But the other part that influences how we emotionally regulate is what happens to us and how that impacts not only how our brain physically develops, but what coping skills we come up with. What decision do you feel was your jumping off point for this week's conversation, Mary? So the scene that Carol was talking about earlier, that to me is the starting point of Dean's quote unquote biggest decision, because in the present day, his decisions have very little to do with what actually happened with the outcome of the episode. The way that he lashes out or acts out is by cheating on Amanda. And let me just walk you through my thought process here. When they're kissing in the broom closet and he's trying to make plans with her and like you said, just trying to tell her about the most amazing thing that he can possibly think of, she realizes that he's neglected. So she's a teen, so she doesn't necessarily say those words, but that's really what's happening. And she's shocked that he doesn't have a curfew. She's shocked that he's taking care of his brother alone for a couple of weeks in a motel. The reality is that she doesn't even know the half of it. And so in that moment, he's confronted with like really big feelings that he has neither the emotional maturity, like you were talking about, Carol, or the toolkit, like you were also talking about. Reminder that he's 18 years old, so I don't want to make it seem like he's fully doing, he's doing this maliciously or consciously, but he goes and cheats on Amanda because he knows that the consequence of that will be that she's going to break up with him. And so it becomes very much a self-fulfilling prophecy here of, you know, I hate the school. This always happens, blah, 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 blah. I'll be honest. I don't even think that's what I saw initially was that he cheated on Amanda to get a reaction from Amanda to get the breakup to move things on. I saw it as he failed with Amanda and was taking a mulligan. Like maybe the next girl will find my no curfew interesting and get my cool Dean vibes and like me and, you know, fulfill me in some way. Do you think it was the way Amanda reacted to what he described, or do you think it was the fact that she invited him to meet her parents? So for me, I really think that it's both of those things compounded. I think that one without the other, he may not have done what he did, but I think both of them together is what happened because she has already hinted that she has quote unquote good parents. And he's like, I don't want to see that. Like, I can't handle seeing what it's like in a good family where parents actually care about their children. His exact words were, I don't do parents. It just feels a little bit of a coded language for someone who's so like, look how free and cool I am and like doesn't want to deal with parents. I think he's speaking about more than just Amanda's parents. I think it's a bit compounded. You're right. I think it has two things at once. To me, thinking of Dean's character over the past couple of seasons, Dean has a constant fear of failure and a constant perception that he's not good enough. A coping mechanism is maybe looking at your dad and going, well, yeah, we're just screwed up. So, of course, I'm not going to be good enough because we're just we're a messed up family with messed up baggage. And this is the best you can be with the messed up baggage we have. Because Dean doesn't really have a sugar, like he doesn't have a blind sugar coated look at his like perception of his family. He literally has a like, nope, we're just a clusterfuck. And this is the best we can be given what we have. 
there's two possible outcomes of meeting Amanda's parents. One is meeting parents that go, wow, you're really resilient. You've been doing a lot. You should be really proud of yourself. How can we help? Which then means he has to confront what his family is. The other possibility of it is they look at him and go, you're not good enough for our kid. Which then means, once again, he's failed to be enough. Easiest out, and it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and a lot of people use self-fulfilling prophecies as a coping mechanism. Not necessarily conscious is... I will blow it up before it has the opportunity to blow up. And if it blows up on my terms, then I was in control. Carol, I'm really sorry, but I cannot relate to what you're saying. I have never done this in my entire life. This is foreign to me. No, I mean, realistically, because I'm speaking very sarcastically, but that's not usually the tone that I like to have here because it's it's so relatable. Really, I get it. Self-fulfilling prophecies are a lot of the times a, a way of validating your world perception. And even if your world perception is destructive, if it's validated, at least some part of you is functional. I think that there's also a way for him to have or to regain some perceived control over a situation. Yes. And I will say that he has the potential to learn how to be out of control by being confident that the people around him are in control. I love how you were like trying to describe this as a puzzle. And I'm trying to solve that puzzle being like, I have no idea what this is referring to. Literally. I think you're right. And that demands trust in other people around him, which he doesn't necessarily have. I would argue the only person he trusts is Sam. And even then, especially this season, Oh, yeah, there's definitely some, um, as we discussed previously, kind of a lack of synchronicity between the two of them. And I think that's to help the audience understand that there is a little bit of a divide between them. And somehow I feel like the end of last week's episode that remains unresolved of him leaving with Ruby in that really nice yellow car might have something to do with that lack of trust. Yeah, it's almost like that lack of trust in Sam might have developed after Sam, gee, I don't know, left and in his perception, abandoned him. And he thought they were on the same page, but clearly they weren't on the same page, which means that he wasn't in tune, as in tune with his brother as he thought. So, uh-oh. So for this week, I want to actually touch on something that Dean did. And I know normally we kind of look at the choices they make, but I feel like this was less of a choice and more of a reaction he had. And that was the way he reacted to being called out by Amanda post uh, being caught cheating. He lashes out of the world and tries to cover up who he is. Essentially, Amanda has re- removed the mask and his coping mechanisms. I don't touch on all of our previous themes here. It's a nice little web. But essentially, we have this Dean who is wearing this mask, who is literally being torn out of a closet, mind you, during this moment, being forced to face who he truly is underneath this facade he puts on. You know, at a certain point, like I kind of referenced the idea, we see these viral videos and people like freaking out and we're all like, I can't imagine doing that. But when you are literally cornered, you know, not literally in this case, cornered and all you have are raw emotion, you have no idea what to do. You need to cover up as fast as you can. And anger is a really easy way to do that. Feelings are morally neutral. You're not a good person for feeling happy, and you're not a bad person for feeling angry. The feelings themselves are morally neutral. 
What happens, though, is we tend to conflate the feelings with the actions. So we then go, you're a bad person for experiencing anger because in anger, you yelled at this person and it's not okay to yell at people. So anger is bad. When the reality is the action is bad, the emotion is neutral. Emotion and behavior are two separate things. And this is actually something that my eight-year-old and I are working on really strongly right now, where sometimes he'll say things out of anger, which again, understandable, it's okay to be angry, but there's no reason to be mean to the person in front of you out of anger. And so there's a lot of validating the feeling that that happens, right? Like I understand that you're angry right now, but the way that you're speaking to me, the behavior is painful for me or hurtful for me. It's starting to get addressed now in more modern parenting, but wasn't necessarily always addressed is what we tell kids is it is okay to be angry and you get to be angry right now. What we need to do is find a way for you to be angry and express that anger that doesn't hurt the people around you and doesn't hurt you. And that's like the toolkit. So keeping that in mind, I don't think the issue was Dean getting unmasked. I think the issue was two parts of Dean's identity came into contact with each other and they didn't make sense to him because, again, he's a teenager. So on the one hand, I can't believe I'm saying this. He's a teenager that saves the world by fighting monsters. And he's a hero. On the other hand, he's a piece of shit that cheated on his girlfriend, which is arguably not a heroic thing to do at all, or not arguably is what I meant to say there. But those are two things that do not meet together, and Dean does not do well with gray. Dean likes black and white. It's bad, I kill it. It's good, I save it. So the concept that he can be both a shitty human being and a hero doesn't make sense to him in the same way that for a lot of this series, he can't understand that my dad can be a hero and someone I love and I look up to, and he could be a shitty dad despite having done his best. Like those two things can exist in the same person, which is something he is very uncomfortable with and he doesn't know how to reckon with and he lashes out because what do I do? I don't, I have feelings, they're in my body, and I want them out, and you're, there's nothing here that I can kill, because unfortunately there's no monster in this high school yet, but I just, I need it out somewhere. So I'm going to yell at the person who I perceived as having understood me for a split second in the closet and realizing how shitty it was that I had to parent my brother, that clearly didn't know me, because if she knew me, she would have known I was a hero. Yeah, okay, sure, because you talked about all your heroics while making out with her in the closet. So yeah, that's that's the thing. It's two parts of his identity coming into contact with each other and him not knowing how to reckon the two. The flip side of that, since we're in this analysis mode, is the lashing out bit. Sam holds back from fighting Dirk, not once, but twice. 
I would argue that Sam, by contrast, can understand that I can do good things in good situations and I can do bad things in other situations. And that's why he doesn't go to Dean for this situation, because some part of him's going, I go to Dean and Dean takes this over. The freak show side part of it aside is I've escalated this to like an 18 year old picking on what, a 14 year old, (laughs) which would not be good. Sam also understands that the thing that can be good in one situation, the same thing can be bad in another situation. And I think that that shows like a, a degree of emotional maturity that you don't necessarily see in, any, in a 14 year old or maybe a better toolkit because he was raised more by Dean than by John. I'm not sure. I always understood Sam as being the product of two unperfect parents that kind of balanced each other out. John is super rules, regulations. This is the box. This is what we do. We don't go out of the box unless under the following. Like he, he runs his family like a military. Dean lives his life emotionally based on wherever the wind like swishes his sails in a particular mood. Sometimes that's into a broom closet with a girl. The thing that I always loved about Sam's character is Sam on some level understands where the rules are important. Like he understands the parts of John that taught him, you don't do this, you don't do that. John's the type of military-esque training that I think would actually teach Sam, you don't ever fight anyone because how I taught you to fight is not how any other kid's going to know how to fight and you will seriously hurt someone. Dean, on the other hand, teaches Sam that like, It is occasionally and even frequently good to do things just because you enjoy them, because you want to do them, because you don't want soup for dinner, you want Fruit Loops for dinner. And those two things kind of build, I think, some of the best parts of Sam. And it's kind of a shame that on one hand, John never gets to see the good parts he built in Sam, or Dean for that matter. And Dean has a really hard time recognizing the good parts he built in Sam. That is so sad and I love it. (laughs) Can we segue into Sam's choice in this episode? I loved Sam in this episode, frankly. Like, it's just a really good story about who he is and what shaped him before, but he's confronted with an action from decades ago that had huge repercussions that he never knew about. So like he's finding out about all this 22 years later, I think. So like you mentioned, the second time that Dirk picks a fight with him, or actually the third time, if I'm not mistaken, Sam decides that this time he's going to fight back. And I think that having listened to your analysis, Carol, I'm starting to think that he listened to the Dean in his head instead of listening to the John. And he does. And as predicted, he overpowers Dirk very quickly and very easily, but he doesn't really stop there. And I think that that's the part that's the most interesting to me. He turns the situation around and he he's the one to beat up the other kid. And then and then he humiliates him in front of all of the kids who are present. And again, I want to be careful because Sam is 14. So I really don't think that this was, again, done maliciously. 
but he's hearing the other kids cheering. And I think, I think in the moment he enjoys it and he gets caught up in the moment and he does something that I think he comes to regret later. And even something that I don't think he would have done in different circumstances. And because in a way he's like exacting revenge on Dirk, right? When the Sam that we knew in season one was really against revenge. So Sam's actions back in 97 is what launched the actions of this episode 22 years later. And he could have stopped beating up Dirk, much like our conversation in Metamorphosis Drew, where Jack could have held back, but didn't. But even in the fight choreography, like there, they clearly indicate two points in the fight where Sam has won. Sam could turn around, walk away, and everyone knows he won. But in both cases, he goes, no, no, no. I'm not done yet. And I think that is kind of, as you both put it very well, that is a very mellow blend of both the John and the Dean side of, I mean, ultimately he held back from fighting. Yes. A teacher intervened and stopped before anything more could happen. And yes, when he's threatened in the classroom, he kind of just shrugs it off. But in this moment, he's gotten to a point where essentially it's self-defense. He has basically said, I'm not going to fight you taking the hit and then went, Okay, at this point, there's no walking away. You're just going to hit me again. I need to defend myself. But it's that tip over the choice he makes to continue lashing out and tips over into I'm just getting revenge now. I would also argue like this might be a little bit of my own, like in my head. But could this be where maybe the hero complex starts? I mean, I'm going to argue that there's no way either one of those boys walked out of that situation without a hero complex a mile wide. Um, I definitely think this probably formed a like fundamental memory or a core memory for him. I have a general frustration with the first six seasons of Supernatural and this like underlying theme that everything to do with Sam from the past, whether it be a choice he consciously or unconsciously made, wreaks eternal havoc. Like it's just at a certain point, and maybe. <sighs> Maybe I should have seen this as the writing on the wall. I'm just kind of like, can we stop telling people that like they're doomed by things that happened a number of years ago? The other thing is, even in that fight, he holds down on like he stays down on the ground for a good couple of minutes, not doing anything. And there's to me, there's a very clear calculation of like, okay, do I do this? Yeah, and I think the initial calculation, the way I interpreted it, was probably like, okay, the John Winchester, fine, I'm going to put this kid in this place, so he's going to leave me and my friends alone, and I'm going to walk away. I don't think it was necessarily revenge against Dirk. I think it was probably just in this one little bubble of time, I'm in charge, I'm setting the standards, I'm making all the decisions. I get to decide when to stop. I get to decide when's enough. I get to make all those choices. Because keep in mind, he he. Ha- this happens right after he walks out of a conversation with his teacher, where his teacher says, "Like, if you don't want what your family wants, that's okay. I'll talk about my opinions based on what I would do in this school based on that conversation and later." But I think that's part of it, and I think it actually mirrors Dirk. Which is when you've been in a position where you felt very disempowered, like you have no control, like things are just happening to you. 
you desperately want to find control somewhere. When we're kids, those like what looks like control and what gives me a sense of control is not always like a straight line or logical. So to Sam, in that moment, he got to control everything. He got to make the decisions. He was in charge. And I think for Dirk, it was everything has been happening to me. And at school, I get to make things happen. I get to decide how things go. That is where my power comes from. And this is not to say, because I see this happen a lot, and this is probably very poignant, mental health used as a reasoning and excuse for very violent acts. And there is a very, very big difference between lashing out in anger like Dirk does, where you can see he's looking for a reaction and writing a manifesto with a plan because so-and-so wouldn't go to prom with you. Those are two very different things. and I don't ever want them to be equivocated because far too often I see this particular narrative of mental health issues being used to explain And I wish I had a clip for it because there was a very interesting comment on social media where someone was like, teenager at a high school is like, we're not friends with these people because from the moment we we meet them, something about them scares us. Too often, the responsibility of correcting that behavior gets pushed onto other children. Make friends with him. Help her. You know, she's being bullied to you, but if you were just making like that gets pushed onto kids as opposed to the adults in the room, the school, the bus stepping in and going, hey, this isn't okay. If this is you trying to process something, then we will deal with that over here by talking. But we're not dealing with it by forcing you to partner with the well-behaved child in class in hopes that it quote unquote rubs off. Right. So as you know, I am a school shooter survivor. And the person who decided to open fire at my school basically said that the reason why he was doing this was because he was not part of the popular kids and he had been bullied by the popular kids. He didn't even go to my school, but he chose that particular school for his own reasons. And I remember in the days and the weeks that followed, a lot of the narrative was Well, you know, if people were more inclusive, this wouldn't have happened. And I have to say that for a long time, I internalized that. And it's only recently that I've kind of been calling bullshit on it. Because like you said, and those are, and I absolutely agree. Those are two separate behaviors. What Dirk did versus what, I mean, you're referring in part to school shooters. Those are two separate things. Uh, thank you for really making that difference because I think it's an important one because Dirk needs help. Let's be very clear. He needs proper help. He needs an adult to talk to him properly so that he can then process all of those big feelings too. There's a little bit about Dirk that I'd like to talk about. And I know Carol, you have extra things to talk about when it comes to Dirk. He comes from a low-income family where his dad was always busy working. His mom was sick. Then she passed away from cancer. And from what we understand, Dirk was often left alone, isolated. He took care of his mother while she was sick. So he was neglected and parentified. That really reminds me of another character on this show, 
called Dean Winchester. You may have heard of him. And I think that Dirk is who Dean could potentially have become, maybe if he hadn't had to have cared for Sam. I kind of love that, like, in an episode that's so Sam-centric, we still manage to get a lot about Dean. There is a very big difference, or there's, the parentification happens in a bunch of different ways, but there's also a very big difference between parentification that happens because of socioeconomic reasons versus parentification that happens because of choices. For example, if I'm working with two folks that have been parentified, but one had was from a single parent household whose parents had to work three, two to three jobs to literally keep a roof over their head. I'm going to look and there's going to be a very different impact on the choices to for that child to be become parentified than the kid who comes from maybe a two person two parent household where both parents worked a regular 9 to 5 job who were home all the time and that kid became parentified because of other reasons like my understanding is that the oldest child takes care of the youngest child because that's just how family structures work as opposed to i really wish i oldest child didn't have to look after my youngest child but like it's that or we're homeless kind of thing I say that it has a very different impact because children are incredibly bright, they're incredibly astute, and they recognize things going on around them. So they do understand the difference between my mom has to work all the time to pay bills or my dad has to work all the time to pay bills versus mom and dad are home, but I'm still not getting a parent. Like Those are two very different impacts. Dirk has the confluence of like every possible shitty situation. Low income, so parent has to work two jobs. This is the United States, so I also don't even want to know how much of a hit cancer treatment possibly cost. Had to take care of his mom while she was dying. There's grief, but there's also complex grief over probably feelings of relief once his mom was dead of no longer having to do that work and simultaneously desperately hating that his mom is gone. And all of that is in this tiny human who goes to school, gets picked on for things outside of his control, doesn't ever seem to have an adult who's present because I, I mean, his dad owns what he can, but his dad's not at school. His dad's not in that environment, there doesn't appear to be an adult at any point in time that seems to like sit this kid down and go, hey, what can we do? What outlet can we find you? I would argue there is a pretty privilege there in that Sam is a really cute looking kid. He comes to school, essentially writes what looks like a joke paper and gets like taken aside at class, given mentoring, offered opportunities, encouraged in like a whole conversation. And he's been there for like, what, four days? And I can't imagine to Dirk what it must have felt like to watch this new kid waltz in and get all the love and care and support that you desperately wished you had in four days. Yeah, for sure. Like the amount of injustice that this must feel to him. I would have picked on Sam at that point. 
<laughs> I was going to say it makes sense for Dirk, but yeah, that puts, you put it well. But that's what he's trying to do by picking all those fights. He's trying to draw attention to himself. It's a call for help. Oh, Dirk. I can't but help to wonder what Dirk's life would have looked like in kind of modern concepts around substance use that we have versus probably what was around in the 2000s. And even because even today, it's definitely there's still a lot of stigma around it, but it's nowhere near what it was in the early 2000s. Well, with those very sad words, are we ready to move into critical time? I think we are. This episode was, I'm going to start with the director, who was Adam Kane. It's his only Supernatural episode. I took the liberty of looking him up because I always find, again, we have our one-offs. You know, there's going to be some sort of, like, interesting piece of their past. He has just basically done, like, one, like, maybe three or four episodes of, like, Every every single show I can recall the name of, but guarantee you I've never seen. Ultimately, I don't think I can glean anything from Adam's uh, pre and post Supernatural writing times. Let's move on to our writers. And this episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin. Now, these are the lovely people who gave us Yellow Fever, so... That and and I just also want to point out that there's another. So in in addition to the Truman High bombers, there's also a case of Dean calling an Asian student Hello Kitty. So I have some questions regarding Asian hate when it comes to these two writers. Once maybe, twice is weird. Three times, yeah, no, I don't like that. Three times in two episodes. So something to keep in mind, because it's, you know, despite the consistent misogyny that we've seen, this is uh, a little different than what we've seen before. Yeah, I'm also going to say that these writers don't exactly have a great status on consent over their writing history. Keeping in mind that Dean literally says in this episode, three of the cheerleaders are legal Guess which three. So we've talked about this before, and I don't know if you agree, Carol, but to me, like, this is just the writer's room being absolutely fanatical about making Dean seeming horny at any cost, even if the cost is to make him look like a predator, even though we know that given what he's lived, he would not accept anybody taking advantage of children, even 18 year olds. The joke was more important than consistency in the character in the world. Yes, because I'm going to point out that one of the key reasons why he doesn't pursue anything with Joe is because he perceives him pursuing her as being corrupting and not good and damaging and all of these things that, with her particular story, scream of a lot of paternalism. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I don't understand how you can flip from... Be- actually, no, that's a lie. I do, because it's misogyny. I do understand. Because it happens all the time. It happens all actually. the time. You can <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> but yeah, there's just... You'll notice this a lot, Drew. There's there's even stuff Sam does where I'm just like, what? Like, where where does... In what universe? Yeah, no, I I feel like we had a moment with Sam, like, fairly recently where I was like, what a weird out of character thing for Sam to do. And it really just was like, 
to serve a scene, a joke or something. Oh, you know what it was? It was when he wakes up after the sex dream. And I can't figure out if it has to do with the fact that a huge percentage of the fan base is female demographically. And there's this like attempt to machofy the show with these really terrible things. Or if it's like a certain level of the writer's own self-loathing for their, I don't know. It's just, it's not good. It's not. I always felt like, especially at the very beginning, there was so much resentment from the writer's room. And I, I don't, not necessarily, I don't want to just, you know, point at the writers, but like just in general from a lot of the um, creatives who held power in that show that there was a lot of resentment in terms of like the fandom that they, the fan base that they got is not the fan base that they wanted. For example, in this episode, Dean makes a reference, the Oh Captain, My Captain line, referencing a famous film that is very much about students learning who they are and eventually coming out and is heavily considered to be a queer-coded movie. I do know a lot of the tension in the early seasons was because like Kripke had, he had a vision for the show that was not going to have any kind of romantic tropes, which I remember being like, Oh, you know, this is kind of nice and kind of a wonderful break from the soap opera drama that was like Dawson's Creek, which I also watched and loved and all of that kind of stuff. Could we write a space in a story where there doesn't need to be anything romantic in order for it to have validity. I can't figure out if the flip-flopping and indecisiveness has to do with a writer's room that was desperately trying to steer it back towards that, and maybe a studio that was funding it that was going, I don't know if you know, but teenagers spend a lot of money and we would like them to spend their money with us. I think it's the interesting duality of you don't get to pick your fans, but at the same time, I sometimes wonder if we're also, as fandoms, sometimes going too into the weeds and miss like the glaring simpler explanation, which is just we had 12 different writers teams, three showrunners, and then a bunch of actors that may or may not have wanted to be on the show any longer. And this is what you got. This is the hodgepodge of stew <laughs> that you got. We see it a lot more in the later seasons, particularly at the end of the Carver era and into the Dab era. And that's why it's always really hard for me to talk about the creative decisions because you never really know who to pinpoint. It's all, And that's why I talk about it very a very nebulous thing. And I'm like, I don't really want to say that it's the per, this particular writer's fault because I don't know that for sure. Because what tells me that this particular line about Hello Kitty wasn't added by another writer, by another producer, by Kripke himself, I don't know. I don't know. So that's why I never, like I'm never really pointing fingers at anybody specifically, even Sarah Gamble. The more involved fan bases and these communities have become the more representation we're getting on screen which is wonderful we as fandoms 
push for collective changes, for inclusivity, for pointing out problematic things. Flip side is that in an effort to sell things, more and more I'm watching some truly wonderful stories kind of get diluted from a commercial standpoint of we want to hit as many target possible audiences to collect and make as much money as humanly possible. The more connected we get, the bigger the worlds get, the bigger the the world, the bigger our world gets, the more rapid exchange of information we have, the more that gets turned into data points. And the more industry uses data points that are probably not at all reflective of the reality to convince doing things like. To a certain degree, that's also what happened, because we know that in the early seasons, the show was not always sure to be getting renewed, right? You know, this whole five five seasons, he had a plan for five seasons is actually a myth. He didn't have a plan for five seasons. He had a plan for three seasons to begin with. That was it. So like there's... There's this myth around like, oh, yeah, they were going to do five seasons. No, no, no. Every season that they got renewed was a gift for them. They didn't know one season uh, over the next day if they were going to get renewed. And so the only part of the reasons part of the reason why they did is because the fan base was so active and so vocal in in response to that, they opened the door to letting people in a lot with the conventions, with this, with that. And that then had has effects still to this day. Fandoms help propagate new stories, push forward inclusion and diversity. And then capitalism turns that work into data points and stories get built off of the data points not off of the actual feedback and general direction. And and that's the problem. We've started making stories based on data points to make sure we get the highest number of viewers. And someone somewhere probably said, hey, Hello Kitty gets us seven more data points in this demographic, so we're going to put it in. I think that's also the problem, too, when you start building stories in that way, is you then are not just considering who's watching the show and what they like, but who's watching the show and what they don't like. So this week we're doing something a little bit differently. We're skipping the voicemail and we're using critical time for a more unstructured conversation, as you may have already started to hear. But we do have a very specific question for our guest. So Carol... If you were a social worker at Truman High in 1997, apart from changing the name of the sports team, what would you do? Walk us through it. You're hired. It's your first day. You get into your office. You slam your really uh, hip bag down and you start laying some ground rules. Uh, First, I tell an English teacher not to tell a 14 year old that there are exactly four or five moments in their life that are going to define the rest of their life. (laughs) (laughs) Such bad advice. few things. Hey, we have new transfer kids. What are their records from? How did they get registered in the school? Like, did a parent come? Hey, we have two new kids. Has anyone talked to their parent? Oh, no? Weird. (laughs) Oh, can I see their school records? Great. Uh, Do we have a protocol in place for new students? These kids had to come in and register at the front desk to acknowledge their new students. They had to be given a class schedule. Where are their books? Did they get partnered with a guidance counselor to make sure that they were matched with the right 
courses based on what they've done in the past, any sort of coordination. So that's just like basic brass tacks on school administration. I would hope that a teacher would have sent Dirk to me. If not, I probably would have noticed Dirk. It's not like he was subtle about what he was doing. And I probably would have pulled him into <laughs> into my office and been like, so this is the complicated thing about working with kids, especially in therapy. Developmentally, there's different stages. Talk therapy is not accessible to everyone. Dirk is, however, you know, 14. Talk therapy is about a time we could probably start working on that. Definitely a time we could start working on that. And I probably would have been like, hey, kiddo. So I heard that you lost your mom. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but this is a space you could talk about it. Better still, this is a space that you can come to when you just can't. Because I wonder how many of those fights probably would have stopped if Dirk had just had a place to go if he just can't. I also probably would have known that, strangely enough, Sam and Dean seem to come to school without, like, lunches. So are they registered in the lunch program? Probably not, because that would have required paperwork that, again, I don't know how my principal failed to get done <laughs> or get collected. So I would have noticed kids showing up without lunches. I also probably would have known that Dean is at home unsupervised because most teenagers suck at keeping secrets. So I probably would have hauled him in and been like, hey, can we talk about where you're staying? I understand that you're 18 years of age, so technically I can't call CPS on you, but I can be concerned about your brother. Overall, aside from all of that, I think the main thing, if I could sum it down into one non-angry rant, is I would have worked on teaching kids at that school how to emotionally process in a healthy way. And I would have worked on giving kids the space and time to step away and to emotionally regulate when they need it. And that can look like my office door is always open. That can look like hey, we need to talk about how you have a tendency to try and solve problems with your fists. And why is that the first place you go? Because there are other ways of solving the problem. And if the fists are just the one that gets the energy out, then we can talk about other ways to get your energy out. We all have feelings. And they all get big. And some days we're really good at managing those big feelings. And some days we're not. And it's okay to have days where you're not. Well, this has been Free Digital Therapy with Carol. Do we want to take a turn to reflect ourselves on this week's episode? I would love that. This episode really reminds me how important it is to step back from situations where emotions are really, really high. Because I, 34 years old, I'm just not my best self in those situations. And stepping back really allows me to process my own shit and then go back into the situation with a better understanding of where I stand and what my own boundaries are. For me, I I really focus on the memory side of things in this episode, though we didn't speak about it much. It the way the two brothers remember this roughly a month in school 
while I'm sure they are cherry picked memories for the sake of storytelling in a TV show, it feels weird that in an entire month, the, the two things Dean thinks about are the chick who called him out for being for having ish, having like, you know, problems that he needs to deal with and then cheating on her and being called out again and having to react the way he did. And Sam goes right for the hero moment. I think it just reminds us that memory can be fuzzy and details can be lost, whether we focus on the good and forget the negative or vice versa in a lot of cases. With a bit of like an ironic twist on of all weeks to do this, it's reminded me that it's important to reflect on my past. The best way to do that, to focus it for me, has always been writing, which I used to do a lot more and haven't recently until I was encouraged to do so for this show with our lore segments. And while this week didn't have one, they've been a great exercise and have led me to a lot more enjoyment in writing again. And it's a good exercise to write and remember and journal and diary. So I'm using that as my call to action to keep writing a bit more. The way that we understand memory, our memories from our own past, like changes through time because the the context in which we are today means that we'll understand a memory differently than we did a couple of years ago. And that's totally normal. And it's the way that like we integrate this story into who we were, but also who we are today. And so the story can slightly shift because we process it differently as well. Yeah, there's a phenomenon called hindsight bias where we look back on things and judge ourselves and our choices based on the information that we presently have. Uh, And we have a tendency to forget in that situation that the only reason you are able to perceive those different opportunities and different choices is because you have the knowledge of the outcome. There you go. Exactly. And even without that too, you know, like there are things that I'm like, oh yeah, well, I know that now. I I might still do it the same way just because it led me there. Like, I think that there's, you know, there's different ways of approaching it. It's actually one of the biggest triggers for most people that get that anxious feeling of like a, a shame memory where you remember something that you did and you're really ashamed of it. And you sometimes have to forcefully remind yourself acted the way you acted based on the tools, knowledge and experience you had at that point in time. This episode has actually always been my least favorite episode, not because it's badly written, not because of... I was pretty badly bullied in elementary school, and I kind of went from the, like, Sam to Dean (laughs) back to Sam in my evolution through school. So I was really bullied in elementary school. I developed a defense mechanism of I learned very quickly that when you're the loudest person in the room, people don't actually pay attention to you. They're not really paying attention to you. So it's actually the easiest way to get away people looking too closely. That way of coping was basically how I got through high school until I actually had some teachers that pointed it out to me, kind of episode for me because I can kind of relate to both perspectives. I have I have been not the cheating on part of it, but being called out and like my two identities being kind of forced to meet each other and not dealing well with that. And I also you know kind of liked the one moment where I got to fight back against the bully and then realized afterwards that that didn't really solve the problem so much. 
So it's always been kind of a hard episode to watch because of, I think, secondhand embarrassment. Because I watch it and go, ooh, oh boy. Ooh, yeah. Oh, I relate. Oh, this hurts. And I think, for me, the hardest part of this episode is this kind of narrative you just need to get through school. Like, you just need to get through high school, and then you're done with it, and everything will be better. Yeah, I didn't appreciate that either, frankly. Yeah, no, not a not a good lesson, please. No, and I understand where it comes from, because it's... It fundamentally comes from people that have never been in those situations that desperately just want to find something to help. And it also sometimes comes from some people that did get out and everything was better once they got out. But it's not always that way. And I think the thing I take away from this is if you are in a situation where you are doing things in hopes of getting attention and help and it doesn't seem like anyone's listening to you there is a chance it's not because they're not listening it's because the language you're communicating in they don't understand but that doesn't mean there isn't someone that is going to speak your language so if you feel like you're scratching at the walls, trying to get someone, anyone, to just help you open the door, you can find that. And if you can't find it, it is okay to ask someone else to help you find it. And you don't have to have all the words. You don't have to have all the tools. Trust me, a lot of us are very trained at like breaking things apart and making sense out of single word answers. Try to find someone who can speak your language. And if you can't find someone who can speak your language, try to find someone who understands, I need help. Very well said. Thank you. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Al for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Carol Ferry for joining us. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. We're all recording? Okay, great. Three, two, one. Do we want to do it again just in case? (laughs) Let's do a second one just for safety, but I think it was okay.